do announcements and stuff first. So. Just want to say welcome this morning. Uh, thank you for being here. And uh, uh, we've got a few uh, things to share in the way of amount announcements. Well, the real focus is the uh, Samaritan Purse. And I think we have a brief video. Oh, okay. Um, so you want me to do the prayers and stuff too? Okay. And so... Uh, the, just so that you are aware, the, the shoe boxes, uh, are up here. There's a packet, a little envelope, or not envelope, but a flyer that goes with it. And I still, I have it again saying, think tropical. Again, if you filling in these boxes, the, the, these are going to the Pacific Rim, South Pacific. So think of those things. And, uh, there's gonna, we'll show a little video in just a minute on that. Uh, in our prayer needs this morning, I just wanted to, uh, first kind of, I guess you could almost say, uh, celebrate the fact that these, uh, all these wildfires are becoming, are more than, majority of them are more than 50% contained. Some of them are up into the 80s and 90% contained, which that is good news. And, uh, the prayer would be that the fire season might be over. <laughs> And, uh, Kay is home from Reading and, uh, uh, she has a couple of more antibiotic infusions, which she has to do in Eureka. And, uh, so she, her prayer would be that she'd get her physical strength back. That was very specifically what she asked for. Uh, my son Chris, uh, still having extreme neuropathy and uh, fatigue, pain. Joint pain, especially and stuff. So, uh, appreciate you continuing to pray for him. Um, Ted not feeling well. So, uh, said we'd pray for him this morning and then, uh, praying for the Cardoza family. They had a private service yesterday, uh, for Alaris and, um, the, huh? Or, yeah, uh, Friday. And they've got a number of family that will be traveling home today up to Oregon and, and, and down to Madera and that area and stuff. So uh, they, they ask for prayer for safe driving and family getting home okay. Uh, any other prayer needs that anybody's aware of? Suzanne does? Does she mind being on the prayer list? Okay, Suzanne Silvers. And she's got a skin cancer on her head. Okay. Right. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning first to, to acknowledge that you are the God of all creation. 
you alone are worthy of our praise. And as we come to worship this morning, we ask, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and our minds through your Holy Spirit, that you would work in us, cause us to be the men and women of God that you need us to be in our community, that we might be a witness and a testimony to your your mercy and your grace. And give us your eyes and your ears that we might be able to express our faith to others when given the opportunity. We do bring our needs before you. You tell us that we can do that boldly to pray for mercy and grace. And so we do exactly that. We bring Kay to you and ask, Lord, that this uh, last round of antibiotic infusions this, this week would be sufficient and, and that it would uh, cause her body to be able to fight off whatever's uh, left, if anything, of this uh, uh, infections that she's had. And then we ask, Lord, that you would grant her her prayer in the sense of, of, of regaining her strength quickly. But also, Lord, give her wisdom as to when to, to slow down and to, to take a break, too. And for my son, Chris, we pray for a healing in his body uh, after all the, the cancer treatments and stuff, the, the, the remaining stuff that's left over from that, the neuropathy and the fatigue. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to him, please. Thank you, Lord, for the news that these fires are beginning to subside, that they're beginning to get control. We ask, Lord, that they would be successful in, in getting them completely out and that we would be done with the fire season this year. And, Lord, for Suzanne Silvers, we ask, Lord, that you would be with her and ask that you would bring healing to her, that this uh, would be a very topical situation still, just a, a skin cancer and nothing more, and that it would be something that they could treat easily and quickly. And uh, that there would no be, you would just be with her, give her a sense of peace, and uh, Lord, be with the family as they minister to her. And then for our brother Ted, we just ask that you would be with him, bring healing to his body. Father, again, we thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. We thank you that we know the God of creation who has chosen to, to reveal himself to us. You, you revealed yourself to us. Uh, you became flesh. You dwelt among us. You showed us through physical and through your word and through the teachings. And we thank you for your word that we will share in this morning uh, that lets us see the God of, of of our of, of our salvation at work in Jesus name amen
Do you want to just watch it quietly? No. Uh, no, Oh, that's just. Well, was there anything special that you wanted to draw attention to? Okay, uh, my understanding is that there's uh, also a way of paying for the shipping in advance through this. That would make it really helpful if you wanted to, to do that. It's, it describes it here in the pamphlet, too. Uh, and that way it, it makes the shipping so much easier. We appreciate it. Well, let's have a few songs of worship. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me. Let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great. And your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on seeing you. Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. 
still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. I'll worship your holy name. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Filled with messages from Thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal
joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair. But through thy free goodness, my spirit's revived. And he that first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wanders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I found. Last week, we started a new series, DJ Sharing, and he gave a great introduction to our study of the seven churches of the book of Revelation, uh, looking at the book of Ephesus, or the church of Ephesus. Um, the only thing that I was going to kind of restate from that intro is that Jesus Christ made it absolutely clear he is King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is sovereign and preeminent in all things. And I'd like to look at the book of Colossians very quickly in uh, chapter 1, where this is how Paul puts it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything he might be, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What a powerful statement by, uh, that concludes that little passage. Making peace by the blood of the cross. We were enemies. We were not at peace with God, but through Jesus Christ, we, we and accepting him as our Savior, allowing his sacrifice to cover our sin. We become at peace with God. What an amazing thing to think of. Uh, we deserve his wrath and we're at peace with him. And so he's king of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign, sovereign and preeminent in all things. And uh, I like the reality here that, uh, you know, he is the, the firstborn of creation. People will look at that and say, well, see, that means that, you know, Jesus was a, a person that was just you know physically born. And what that actually means is firstborn is, is a position of, of, of honor in the sense of one who inherits what the family has. In other words, he's the, the firstborn in the Hebrew family would inherit basically everything. And, uh, the, he's therefore the one who is preeminent in all things. He inherits all things as the son. Uh, so that's, you know, says that all things are his. And then what does he turn around and do? According to the other things that we read in Romans, he turns around and shares them with us and makes us joint heirs with him. And so, uh, the image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation, all things, uh, uh, are created by him in heaven and on earth. And he lists them, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all created through him and notice for him. Before all things and in him, all things hold together. Science has yet to figure that out. What is it that actually holds everything together? They've come up with some interesting things. The last one that I actually know the name of was called gluons. I remember uh, John Christensen shared that with me when he was down south uh, attending medical school in, in, in Southern California. And he's, he thought it was interesting that they came up with the word gluons. But since then, apparently, that's no longer the right word either. But uh, it's an amazing thing to see. So uh, we are looking at, uh, again, the, 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 the seven churches. Uh, we're going to be looking at Smyrna today. And uh, let's have a, a word of prayer and then we'll read that scripture. Father, as we open your word together, we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive from you through your word the things that we need to have to encourage our walk, to strengthen our walk, cause us maybe, Lord, to also be bolder in our faith. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask that you, your Holy Spirit, you would lead us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're looking at today is the second church listed in the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, the church in Smyrna. This will cover verses 8 through 11. 
Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, he's speaking to John. John's on the island of Patmos receiving this revelation. And and he's uh, Jesus speaking to him. He says, write this to, to Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That's how he's identifying himself. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander, or blasphemy actually, of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's a lot to cover here. Um, notice that one thing that's missing in this that was in the book of, of, of uh, about in Revelation about Ephesus. And that was in Ephesus. He said, but I have this against you. That's not in this one. There's two of the churches where he doesn't say, I have this against you. Smyrna being, uh, Smyrna being one of them and Philadelphia the other. And so as we take note of that, we're going to see that as a persecuted church, they, they have every reason, if you will, to go and, and, and get, either give up or blend in or compromise, but they haven't done it. Now, if you, I have to give you a little bit of background on Smyrna. Uh, it's the only city of the seven that is still active today. It's called Izmir, and it's in the, in in Turkey. And uh, it was the, what they know of the city was that it was founded at least three thousand years ago. They do not know who the founder was, or the actual time that it was founded. But they do know that it's one of these things where it's layer upon layer upon layer of city built over the same place over and over again. There were earthquakes, there were uh, floods, there were different things that, that, that destroyed the cities. And it's been built over and over again. And today it is still, like I said, a city in Turkey uh, called Izmir. It was a major port city. If you look on the map, uh if you have a Bible map in your in your Bible, uh, uh, it, it might show it. But uh, if you go to look on online, the best thing to do is to look up Izmir, Turkey, <laughs> and and you can see where it is. It's got a huge, huge inlet or harbor, and it's very well protected. And and so it's a it was a major port city at the time that the Book of Revelation is written. There were at least a hundred thousand people living there. So you're talking about a city that was almost as big as Humboldt County in the sense of population goes. And so it, it was a, a, a thriving, busy seaport and it had a major export. And it comes out of actually the name Smyrna having to do with the product called myrrh and you might recall when uh, Matthew 2, when the wise men show up to, with Jesus, they bring frankincense and myrrh. 
those were extremely expensive oils. And myrrh being one of them was around Smyrna and in that area, they grew the trees that were tapped for the, the oil and, and, and for, for the myrrh. And it was used as perfume. And then it was also used, uh, for anointing the dead. It had some very strong preservative qualities about it as well. And so they would anoint the dead with them as well. Uh, and so it was a, a, it was a very expensive item. Uh, and as they, uh, exported it, the, that, that city Smyrna became a wealthy seaport. And because of it was a wealthy seaport, it also started to attract lots and lots of business. There was a uh, talk about uh, a hive of pagan religions. There wasn't any one religion that dominated, really. There were literally dozens of, of, of pagan religions, Diana, Zeus, uh, Apollo. It was just goes on and on and Roman gods and, and Greek gods and and local gods and eastern gods and it was just uh hundreds i mean uh dozens of temples that mounted there in fact there was one mountain behind the city and temples were all around it and they called it the, uh, a crown you know and in fact they 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 even looked at it as as uh one of the cities one of the things they called themselves the crown of asia and uh so uh, as we, we look at this, one of the things was when it was rebuilt, just, uh, the last rebuilt before this was, uh, time had, had come, it was what they called a planned city. They actually mapped out the, the streets. Most cities in, in the old world like that started with a little nucleus and it just kept growing and growing and growing. It sits, cities, you know, streets wind and cross and go all over the place and there was no rhyme or reason to this. But this had a, a central business district. It had residential district. It was a planned city, which was unique in that time. And again, like I said, it was a, a, a very religious city. And I'm, I'm emphasizing the word ritual, religious in the most worldly way I can. It was, uh, it was a cosmopolitan way, meaning that there were many, many pagan religions, gods and goddesses and their temples. And they got along. They, they, they didn't interact with each other in a negative way. The most important thing was to be successful with business and, and, and they got along. And the only thing that was interesting was is that if you weren't a part of one of these religions, you were looked down on in the sense of what's wrong with you? You need to be something. And, uh, so the idea of an atheist was rare in the sense of someone who didn't believe in some kind of a god or goddess. It also, at this point in time, had a substantial Jewish community. And you would have thought somehow there would be a great contrast here in the sense of them getting along. But candidly, this Jewish community had had extremely compromised itself. And so there was no problem in getting along. In fact, when it came time to declare, oh, Caesar is Lord, They'd give it mouth service and say, oh, Caesar is Lord. And that was something that they had to declare periodically to, to maintain their citizenship and, and, and the relationship. 
Um, Smyrna was an independent city or a free city, which meant that they were allowed to govern themselves. And in order to keep that status, they were extremely loyal to Rome. They never wanted to infringe on that because if they could make their own laws and rule themselves, that was to their advantage, especially the profit making that they were doing. And and the, so they, they were very careful to maintain that relationship, so extremely loyal to Rome. Uh, the uh, the church in Smyrna uh, was a small Christian community, heavily persecuted, and it was persecuted by the pagans and the Jews. They were accused of of amazing things. Uh, you, you think about it. First off, they were called atheists. The reason why they were called atheists is that they only believed in one God and they ignored and said all the other gods didn't exist. And that the only way to become in a relationship with the one true God was through Jesus Christ. You think of Acts chapter four. There's no other name under heaven that one might be saved. It has to be through Jesus Christ. And that's what they preached. That's what they taught. And so they were looked down on. They were anti-city. They, they weren't part of the the mix and and you know they they ended up being looked at as you know very narrow minded and uh nobody wanted to have anything to do with them if the church was gone they wouldn't miss it so they called them atheists they also labeled them as enemies of rome very interesting thing to think about you know the church being called the enemy of rome uh and and the reason was they refused to say Caesar is Lord at the ceremonies and at the festivals and stuff like that. They would not say Caesar is Lord. And so uh, that they, they, they were accused of being rebels or rebellious or trouble, uh, you know, rabble rousers, this type of thing. They also practiced within the church what was then called love feasts. I'm sure that some of you have heard of those for a while in the 70s and 80s. Churches were having their love agape feasts or agape gatherings. What it was, was basically having a potluck with a fellowship together and singing some songs. <laughs> okay. It, it was, it, it, and that's what it was about. I, so I put here love feasts underneath it on my notes. I wrote potluck. <laughs> okay. Uh, sharing fellowship and meals together. Persecutors said, oh, love feast. They knew what was going on, especially the, the, the Jewish persecutors, but they insisted that they were orgies. So they're, they're enemies of Rome. They hate Rome. That's not necessarily true, but they refused to declare Caesar as Lord. They called them atheists. And now they're, they, they are saying that their love feasts and gatherings were orgies. And then they looked at communion. And this wasn't the only place that had this problem. They accused them of cannibalism. That was one of the things that people would do. Even those who knew that's not what it was. They would say, oh, they eat the flesh and drink the blood. And they would say they are cannibals. Well, if you're in a pagan religion uh, and you're, you're already 
having some bizarre things in your your religion and your faith, it's pretty easy to believe something like that. And and so they were labeled even that. So as a whole, the Christian community was pretty much despised, put down. They got only the most menial jobs and then had a problem keeping them. The only time that they got work really was when there was an uh, an excess of things to be done and not enough labor to do it. So you be if you were a Christian and you had a job and and things got a little bit slow, you were the first to go. The more vocal uh, people within the faith that were sharing their faith and and the leaders of the of the church were frequently martyred. They were put to death, and that, and I'm not going to go into the details of some of the bizarre things. If you want to read about it, Fox's Books of Martyrs gives you you know a pretty good picture of it, but. The one that I am uh, going to share with you uh, is probably something that many of you already know about. Uh, and and he was a pastor and an overseer of the church. His name was Polycarp. And in 155 A.D., he was arrested. He was tried and given multiple opportunities right up to the day he was executed. He was given the opportunity. All he had to do was open his mouth and say, Caesar is Lord. And he absolutely refused. He says, my, my Lord has served me well for 86 years. He was older. <laughs> to serve, and, and I'm not about to back up on him now. And so they, they took him to an arena. There was a stake in the ground and, and the wood spread around it. And they were going to actually nail his hands to the to the stake and he says you won't need to do that i'm not going anywhere and so he was loosely bound and that was highly unusual the flames leapt up around him and and consumed him and he died praising god and they heard him now some people say well that's legend uh, i i'm inclined to to think of the number of things that i have heard over the years and 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 it, and through the history of the church, not just the, the early history, but all through the church of amazing things of people who martyred and the things that they said and did. And, and while they were being martyred, that they would kneel and pray while the wild animals were, were let loose and, and they'd sing. Uh, if there was a group of them put into the arena together, they would sing a song and, and of worship. Uh, they were confident that they had something better ahead of them. Again, Fox's Book of Martyrs is an excellent read if you're interested in some of the history of that. There was a kind of a, a brief look at the letter that I wanted to do this this morning. It's 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 pretty simple and it's, it explains itself pretty well. You don't need a lot of detail, but uh, it's, it says it's to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Here's, as BJ said last week, there's a lot of discussion about who the angel might be. Is it something supernatural or not? 
I'm one of these people that, I, that look at it and, and say, well, what does the word angel mean in, in the language? It literally means messenger. And it was used in lots of other capacities. It wasn't only used but in a biblical sense of, ooh, angels, although there was a lot of angel worship in the Hebrew culture at that time, especially when you got into the pagan cities and, and, and stuff where they got away from Jerusalem and Judea. And, and so but it says messenger. And it, it it could be even the pastor. And so writing to the angel of the church in Smyrna, it could have been easily the idea of the messenger, the one who delivers the word in Smyrna. Write this, the words of the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who died and came to life. I mean, this is just like what was it was said earlier uh, in in, in uh, Revelation chapter one. Uh, he Jesus says uh, says to to John when well when John sees Jesus in, in his in this vision that he has as he's given the word, he says, "When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. By the way, if he has the keys of death and Hades, that's an easy statement that these people would fully understand. If you have the keys to the jail, you're in charge. You have the authority, because only the person that has the authority to open the gate is is the one with the key. And Jesus has the keys. He's, so he's, he labels himself here as he's talking to the, the writing to the church of Smyrna as the first and the last. Beginning and the end. And he says, the one who died. And this word for died is literally one who breathed his last. It means he died. Some people try to use it symbolically in some metaphoric way. It, the literal meaning of this word was one who breathed his last or it was someone who is without life. You know, pretty literal. One who is deceased. Uh, I, I'm trying to get any more clear than that. It says he was dead. It means he no longer breathed. Jesus came in the flesh. He emptied himself, became flesh, dwelt among us. Philippians tells us that he died on the cross as a servant to us. And the idea here is that he literally experienced what death is. Talk about humble. That's what Paul says. Have the mind of Christ. Be humble. You know, look what, what God has done. And he says, and then it says, and came to life. In order to come to life, to have something fresh happen, he literally had to be dead. And this idea of, of to come to life is to suddenly have breath. Something comes to life, it has breath. To be among the living. <laughs> it's literal. So these words, in their literal words, and you know, an idea was, one who breathed his last now breathes. Again. He tells them in verse 9, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation here, uh, the literal translation for the word that's used here is 
pressed and squeezed. Something that is pressed and squeezed uh, or pressed and persecuted is, is, is the idea of being here is, is being alluded to. But pressed and squeezed, the idea of, of tribulation is to be have your breath squeezed out of you as a sense of that. I know your tribulation. And one would have to say, in a sense, how would the, you know, in a sense, uh, the creator created him. So he, he would know something about him, but how would he know the actual sense of their tribulation? Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Not empathize, sympathize. Do you know the difference? Empathy means I, I see what you're going through and I'm trying to identify with you, but I've never experienced it, really. To sympathize is to actually go through it like somebody else has. And therefore, you have sympathy for the situation. I sympathize with our, you know, uh, unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, I know what you're experiencing. I have experienced it. I know your poverty. This word poverty here means to be destitute, destitute like a beggar. That's where the, the, the people of the church were always on the edge financially. If it weren't for the fact that they were together, many of them would have uh, failed financially, not survived. Destitute. Jesus, he says, I know what it is to be destitute. And I thought, that's a pretty strong statement to say about the God of all creation. I know what it is to be destitute. But in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, Matthew records uh, the cost of following Jesus is uh, the title here in, in the ESV. It says, now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side of the lake. And the scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, I don't own physically of this earth. I don't own, even though he was literally preeminent in all things, he, he, as he's experienced it as a man walking the face of the earth, he had nothing that had value except what he wore. And when we get to uh, John uh, chapter uh, uh, 19, that it says that at the foot of the cross, they, they, they cast lots for the one thing that he had of value. And that was the tunic that he wore. It was a special, it was uniquely made. And I'm sure even that probably was a gift from someone to him. And so they, they, they normally they would tear all the things up and everybody get an equal part of the materials of, of things. And, but, but the tunic 
was so special they decided now we'll cast lots for it and one of us will be lucky. That was his most valued possession as far as, as they could see. He knew poverty. He knew what it was to be hungry. Think about what, you know, what he went through in, in the temptations in the wilderness. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be thirsty. He knew what it was to be fatigued. We find many scriptures that deal with how he was tired, sleeping in the boat and other, other situations and times. He says, you're destitute, you have poverty, but you are rich. They had what mattered. They had their treasures in heaven, if you want to go to Matthew chapter 6 and look at it that way. You have what matters. I read an article that was written a number of years ago by uh, John MacArthur, and he was talking about uh, a person who had visited his church, and and this is a a statement that he wrote about it. He first offered this. He says, don't ever feel sorry for the persecuted church. That struck me. Because... You know, we have the posters and sometimes around and stuff like that. And occasionally we'll see a, 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 a film clip of some kind or read through a story, the Vox's Book of Martyrs or whatever. And, and, and we, we, we sense and think how sad it is to be in a church like that. And I thought of all the people, John MacArthur living in a, excuse me, I don't mean to be, you know, Wanting this a little bit, but he lives in a wealthy area of Southern California. He has a, 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 a successful and affluent church. And, uh, you know, for him to say, don't feel sorry for the persecuted church, it just struck me as peculiar. So it caught my attention to read the rest of the article. I'll just take this one portion out of it. I will never forget. I was standing down in the front of the, the first row. After a service and having a pastor come to me when the Soviet Union was still under communist rule. And shaking my hand, saying, I have read your material in Russian and I come here and I have experienced your church today. And I just want to tell you, I don't know how you can possibly endure being a pastor in the United States. And I said. John MacArthur, he says, what do you mean? And he said, I could never be a pastor here. It's so much easier in the Soviet Union. I said, why do you say that? And he said, because your people are caught up in the world and material things and comfort. And how can you find true commitment? He said, I would far rather be a pastor in the Soviet Union. I'd rather be, I guess, a pastor of a poor, rich church than a rich, poor church. Interesting thought. Jesus says, I also know about the slander or the blasphemy that's been put against you in your persecution. And I was thinking again, you know, how how this might uh, you might identify this, and, and I thought of uh, Jesus in 
in uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. I'll just read this little piece of the passage. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, ah, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will this kingdom's his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They were giving credit for the miracles Jesus was working to the devil. That's blasphemy. So anything that, you know, they, they basically, Jesus says, I know what it is to be, to, to have blasphemy against you. I know what it is to have poverty. I know what it is to be pressed, to squeezed in the sense of tribulation. And, and so he's able to identify. And, and what this is for us is that reality. There isn't, like I've read in Hebrews, there isn't anything that Jesus doesn't understand and know about whatever predicament we might find ourselves in. He can identify with it. because. And somebody say, well, that means he experienced everything? No, but he was around it so that he ministered to it in such a way that he knows it all. And he's seen it all, and he has experienced so much of it. And so now he encourages in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Literally to, to pain, to, you know, undergo pain or, or, or in a sense. And I thought Romans 5, chapter 1 through 5, it's, it's an encouraging word to anybody that goes through suffering. Uh, Paul wrote to them, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a powerful picture. You see, when we're tested, when we go through trials and tribulations, God's not wasting anything. He's using even that to build us up in our faith and our strength and to know him even better. And he himself has been through it. He says the devil's about to put you in prison, literally jail. And by the way, at that point in time, jail was normally a death sentence you didn't live very long you weren't given uh, healthy food in fact most of the food that you got if you got food was rotten uh your 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 water was tainted 
the jail itself was dank and, and, and unsuitable for living and full of, of, of bugs and disease. <laughs> so it wasn't unusual for somebody in jail to die there in a short period of time. So he says, you're soon good. Many of you will be put in prison, in jail, literally. Uh, and why would, would, uh, you have to ask yourself, why would God allow? And he says that you might be tested. Literally to try to test one's faith to, to uh, build up the character and the virtue of the person in their relationship with Christ. And again, you go to the temptation of Jesus and, and, and look in chapter four of Matthew and what he went through. You know, in the prelude to his ministry. And it says, and I love this part, for 10 days, you will be, you know, tested for 10 days. I get amazed with, with, with commentaries and people. They're all trying to figure out what this 10 days is. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of ideas. Is it, is it 10 seasons of years? Is it, is it, you know, like a day is a thousand years? You know, this type of thing. Uh, all these different things. I think the important thing to look about is for 10 days. He has set a time limit on it. And Satan can't undo that why because he has the keys satan has no power over jesus no authority over jesus and so when he says 10 days what he's basically saying is day one to day 10 and then it will be over satan has nothing to say about it i think that's a powerful picture for us to grasp even when we're going through trials and tribulations to know that there is an end to this because Jesus has declared it. Think of what he said to Peter. Satan is asked to sift you. Peter says, you know, basically boldly that, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. Everything's okay. But Peter got sifted and he denied Christ three times. Even then Jesus was with him. One point, he actually made eye contact with him. I can't imagine. Well, it says that, that, that Peter went out and wept. Okay. When Jesus, when he hears that Jesus is really alive and, and, and he's thinking things are just not going to be the same. I, I, I denied him. And instead, Jesus embraces him. Forgives him. Jesus allowed Satan to sift Peter. He's allowed persecution, a sifting through the centuries. And in every case, you see over a period of time, it's actually built up a firm group of people in their faith. Those people who were hypocrites, those people that were marginal, that that weren't really believers, fell to the side. And you had a church of core church of people who were willing to put everything on the line to have their faith. You knew you were safe with this group. (laughs) And all of it because they wanted to worship Jesus and refused to acknowledge anything else but Jesus Christ as Lord. I think of... uh, I put it this way in my notes. Christ has put limits on Satan and he will say to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. 
Is not this a brand that I have plucked from the fire? Thinking of Zechariah chapter 3. It's a picture of Satan's there ready to accuse us. He's got the list of everything we've done. And he doesn't even get to speak. Gives instructions to the to the persecuted uh, here as well. He says, uh, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Remember what they called this place, the, the crown of Asia? There's an allusion to that by using this. There's a better crown than the crown of Asia. There's the crown of life. And I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life, by the way, is the word for this is the uh, is the victory wreath. We normally think of crown, you know, something metal and jewels infested, you know, <laughs> encrusted, I mean, and, and stuff like that. And, and, uh, no, this was a victory wreath like you got for winning a race. Uh, and it is. You finish the race, you've got the crown of life. You've got the victory wreath. Well done, good and faithful servant would be the thing that would go with that. And finally, in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear. Just simply meaning, listen up. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers, the one who is faithful in completing the race, he's the one who conquers. By the way, you notice you don't have to finish the race first. You just have to complete. And what if you detour along the way? Pilgrim's progress. (laughs) Uh, You know, God's he'll get you back on track. And through his mercy and his grace, he'll get you to the end. He says, you will not be hurt by the second death. The second death has to do with judgment. You can look it up in Revelation chapter 20, uh, uh, verses 14 and 15. It talks about the lake of fire and, and, and the devil cast in and, 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 and all who refused Christ. You know, he says, you won't have to worry about that. I know. I wrote this for myself. I know my name. I, 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 and I know it is written down in the book of life. How do I know this? Because I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And I've accepted him as my savior. All who confess and believe, Paul says in that scripture, are saved. That's definitive, and, and, and we're destined at that point. He's going to come alongside us and, 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 and walk us through the end of the race if he has to carry us himself. The picture of the footprints in the sand, powerful picture of that. All because of what Christ did at the cross. He stood in for us. And took what was owed, what we owed, and took it on himself. The wages of sin is death. And he says right here, even as he's writing to Smyrna, I'm the one who died, but I'm also the one who's alive. The proof that he had the authority and the power was that was the resurrection. And so as we share in, in, in communion, We're celebrating the bread, the flesh, the idea that Jesus Christ come in the flesh. We're acknowledging it. 
that he poured out his blood to cover our sins. We're acknowledging that. Every time we do this, we say, let's do it in remembrance of him. We're acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord and our Savior. We have been using the personal cups. I hope you all have, have one. If you don't have one, you can uh, go out there on the table and get one if you if you need to. <laughs> and uh, we, I, we're going to be uh, uh, singing a song that will help prepare our hearts. It's called Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Is that the right song? Good. Okay, you can come up. Okay. Uh, and it's there's 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 three stanzas that say, and let me say it. It says, "Come ye sinners," in the first stanza. "Come ye thirsty, want the living water," and and then "Come ye weary, you who have worn yourselves out trying to do it yourself, come now and accept Jesus Christ." I feel I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but the reality is, is that we have that, that, that love of Christ. We're coming to celebrate that, uh, He has taken us as sinners who are thirsty, who are weary, and He's lifted us up, given us strength, and He's carrying us through to finish the race where the words will be said, well done, good and faithful service, and we will receive the crown of life. What a powerful picture and a thing that we have. Uh, Let's uh, have the song and uh, go ahead and open your packets if you need to, and uh, then we'll share it together. Come ye weary, 
heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. View him prostrate in the garden, on the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him, sinner will this not suffice. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are ten thousand charms. Lo, the incarnate, venture on him, venture holy, let no other trust in truth. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are ten thousand charms. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. I like the the one stanza that says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. There are people that have a confusion that, well, I have to be good enough. Uh, or others who just think they can put it in their own strength and get there. And it's an interesting phrase, you will never come at all. We must come as we are and confess what we are, sinners, and then ask for the the blood of Christ to cover our sins. Accept him as our Savior. Believe in your, your heart. Confess with your mouth. And then go to that point of reality. He was raised from the dead. The proof that he had the authority and the power to do what he said. And that is to forgive us and to bring us into peace with God forever. Forever. We have no concept of that, really.
the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he passed it to the disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat this, he instructed them, do this in remembrance of me. And he asked them to eat the bread. The end of that meal, he took the cup of blessing and held it up and he said, this now represents my blood poured out for you. Purchase the covenant. And he was referring to the covenant of grace that would forgive us of our sins and draw us into the kingdom of God. Again, where we will have peace with God for how long? Forever. And he asked us as often as we would drink this to do it in remembrance of him. Father, we come to you today, Lord, realizing that we are people that resemble the people that we just studied about. We may not be in in poverty in one sense of, of finances, but we can be in a sense of poverty of spirit and need your help, Lord. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your touch. And we need it every day. In fact, Lord, I think of the song, we need it every hour. And if that is the case, we probably need to say we need it every moment. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. We ask, Lord, that as we leave here, that you will go with us, that we will be observant for those around us and looking for those who are, uh, as we just sang, uh, thirsty or weary, and uh, we would uh, come alongside. Give them a word of encouragement and share the hope that you've given us today, that there is a crown of life for us through you. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us in everything that we do. Cause us to recognize that you are sovereign and preeminent in all things. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close with It's Days of Elijah, right? These are the days of Elijah Declaring the word of the Lord And these are the days of your servant, Moses' righteousness being restored. And though these are days of great trials, of famine and darkness and sword, still we are the voice in the desert crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Behold, he comes. Riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. At the trumpet call, lift your voice in the year of Jubilee. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. And these are the days of Ezekiel. The dry bones becoming as flesh. 
And these are the days of your servant David rebuilding a temple of praise. And these are the days of the harvest. The fields are white in the world. And we are the laborers in your vineyard, declaring the word of the Lord. Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. At the trumpet call, lift your voice in the year of Jubilee. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. There is no God like Jehovah. 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 Behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. At the trumpet call, lift your voice in the year of Jubilee. Out of science hill, salvation comes. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. At the trumpet call, lift your voice in the year of Jubilee. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. Rest of the day. I would say that was pretty good singing for a small group. <laughs> and thank you, ladies. That was 